1: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford Bloor from Football 365. There are so many, too many loose ends to tie up. The latest Premier League crisis meeting will be on Monday. The Football League is facing Armageddon. What then of international football? It has stalled along with the careers of international coaches like Gareth Southgate. What place does it have in a much changed world? I don't know about you, Aid, but I never thought I'd
0: ask that question. <laughs> I think it still has a place. International football. It might not matter to a lot of football fans these days, but it ma- it does matter to an awful lot of people. And look, we've got a section here on this podcast, haven't we? Looking back on on our our fond or not so fond tournament memories, they are international football. It lingers long in the memory quite often especially around around tournaments and we've got Euro 2021 to hopefully look forward to and Qatar the year after I think international friendlies are are obviously under immediate threat There, there seems no point in in those at the moment I would imagine that the Nations League may have to be put on hold but but we need we need to get those playoffs done so that we can finalize who who's going to take part in in the euros and and they i think will have value and and they mean a lot to to the footballers involved and and to millions of people around the continent and the world international football for for me actually as someone that's sort of my my senses have been dull and having played the game and then now working in in the media i unfortunately i lose a little bit of that, that that fan feeling with club football, because I have to stay neutral and look at it in an analytical way. International football, for me, is, is a real release, and I, and I genuinely care when England play. And I know that not everyone thinks, thinks along those lines, but I do, and I know that, that plenty of people do. So, so I hope it, it's not under too much threat. Remember, they did make a pretty quick sacrifice, UEFA. They said, look, the Euros are off just to buy every single league, the time to, to decide what to do. I think that that will be repaid by the clubs. They, they, won't, they won't shut international football out, in my opinion. So in, in practical terms, Seb, when you
1: think England will, will next play a game, it, you know, there's a window in September, October. That's likely, I would think, not to go ahead. There's some talk of an extended break in November and December. Is that the sort of time that you could imagine England playing again? If it does, or if if that team does, in what form will that match take?
2: Well, that's the question, Mike, because the purpose of England playing non-competitive games is because they are a very lucrative draw. I think international football is extremely valuable to lesser nations, and within within that context, England are a, a golden goose. The amounts of money that sort of that can be earned through friendlies and, and what have you. But the thing is, Mike, is I, I don't see... There's a little bit of a contradiction here because I don't see how you can have football with crowds before the end of the year. I mean, I, I freely admit that I'm no expert, but every every expert who I've listened to on this subject says the same thing, is that 2021 is going to be the nearest opportunity for not necessarily even full stadiums, but some kind of crowds in uh, around football. So the question then becomes what is the purpose of england playing non competitive games before that happens i understand the preparatory function in an ordinary at an ordinary time with a a european championship on the horizon of course friendlies and you know preparatory games and trial games those kind of things they they have to happen but at the moment with what is likely to be a very unusual domestic calendar and hey guys let's not forget here that the clubs own the players the nations that own the players, I think we're actually heading for a mighty fight at some point between clubs and nations over this because when do they release players? Are they releasing them during times which should be designated as as a sort of quote unquote off season? If so, don't expect a lot of clubs to take that lying down
1: yeah, well, I suppose what you're you're
2: referring to
1: there, seb or, or certainly implying is this sense of overdependence financially on the England team, you know, the FA, basically, the England team is its meal ticket. Aid, do you think the FA will follow the RFU, who are estimating that they're going to lose at least 100 million in this crisis, in asking for some form of government handout? And what is the look of that? A hugely rich industry like football asking, basically going with a begging bowl, to
0: a very hard pressed government in the first place it, it's a very good point but if their revenue stream has gone the same as as the EFL and, and everybody else then then why shouldn't they I, I guess we, we've got major industries and major companies around the the country that that have furloughed staff that have, have taken advantage of of government help so so why shouldn't the FA when they're Main source of income has has vanished, so they're not the Premier League. It's it's not you know it's not the same body. If they need the money to continue and to uh, yeah to to support English football, then then they'll have to ask for that help. But who who knows? It's 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 fascinating, isn't it? I I think Saint George's Park may have to in terms of preparation for Euros or or for for Gareth Southgate. We may we may just have to have practice games, played at St George's Park. Maybe they could, could stream those on TV. There does seem little little point arranging these the, the these friendlies where you can't you can't generate any money through through income through the turnstile. So so maybe that's something that will happen, much more low-key in terms of the build-up. But yeah, financially, look, we need the FA to be there. We need them to, to be able to operate and, and if they are if they're so short, then then why shouldn't they ask the government for help? Plenty of big businesses have done so already.
1: Yeah, it's international management by definition is a is a very strange and distinctive role anyway. There's an element of hurry up and wait about it, isn't there? Where you have these very very short, intense spells of pretty manic activity which is then leavened by longer spells of being on the sidelines, really. So it is a frustrating experience for a young coach or a younger coach. I was thinking of someone like Gareth Southgate. You know, he has made a terrific impression. I think he has become the embodiment of a, a certain form of management, very empathetic, very modern. And it's obvious that there is a link between him and this current generation of international players. However, if he's denied access to these players, as he has been over the last few months, his career will suffer. Do you think, Seb, that there is any likelihood of
2: Gareth Southgate moving into the club game because of this? I don't think so, Mike, because what is the club game at the moment? That's the other side of that coin. I, I completely agree that it's, to be an international manager now, to not even have certainty over landmarks like the European Championship or I suppose the 2022 World Cup, there has to be at least a, a little bit of a question mark against that at the moment. So what is Gareth Southgate planning towards? I think to be slightly contrary about it, I think actually that he's benefited reputationally from, from being slightly removed from the situation because he has been statesmanlike, as we would have expected him to be. He is whenever he has spoken, he has been extremely impressive, he talks with a lot of empathy, he's one of those people within the game and I emphasize people who understands what football is and it understands what it is and it isn't and it's good points and it's bad points and I think that's a a very important touchstone with the general public whereas in a way, I suppose if you're a if you're a club manager at the moment, then you're sort of compelled to exist in silence as so many of them have been because like everybody connected to the Premier League, no one dare say anything unless they, <laughs> you know, unless they should actually have some responsibility for what happens next. Southgate, from a football perspective, you're absolutely right. It's got to be very hard. You're even under normal circumstances, you, you sort of, you risk being forgotten about. But I, I think as a person, he's he's actually he's actually been elevated by this. I
0: think he's in the best place of anybody at the moment, really. He's, he's perfect for international management, in my opinion. I just I just feel that we all have our specialities, our fortes, areas where we feel most comfortable. And for me, Gareth Southgate's personality, his approach, his status as a, as a natural figurehead lends itself perfectly to this job. And there's absolutely no chance, surely, of him walking away on on a group of of gifted youngsters that genuinely have a chance of of winning major tournaments if they're put on, of course. And look, if 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 we do lose Euro twenty twenty-one or the World Cup, heaven forbid, that will be a real blow to this generation of players because they are coming into the kind of form where I would expect them, genuinely, to be among the top four favourites to to win both of the next two major tournaments. And having learned from some of the experiences, uh, you know, missed opportunities in the previous tournament, game management could have been a bit better. I think Southgate will be better. The younger players will be stronger and more ready. So I desperately hope we can get international football up and running because in this country, I don't think we've ever had more reason to be excited about international football than right now. And I know that seems seems odd given given the nature of the conversation we're having, but in a football sense... This could be our time. Yeah, I think it's in all of our interests to, to get behind it. Yeah, if it is going to be our time, Seb,
1: who do you think were, the key players will be over the next couple of years? You know, who has impressed you in the way that they've maybe made the transition from the club game into the international game? And who will be that late bolter that we always see, you know, from, right from the... The sort of Jeff Hurst, Martin Peters in 1966. There's always a couple of players who come late before tournaments. Those outside the squad, and maybe those who've just got into the squad, who do you expect to play a
2: really good role? I'm not sure about expect. I hope Jack Griddish does. I think Griddish is magic. Honestly, I, I it's a little bit of a tragedy that he hasn't had an opportunity to this point. I think under normal circumstances, if we were now, two, if we were now a month away from a European Championship... I think he would be the guy coming into the reckoning and I, I don't think he he would have an England starting position ready and waiting for him but as an impact player as someone that is just a almost an old fashioned right give the ball to me type you you just love to have him he's he's I got to be careful with when I say this because it can be taken in the wrong way but it's a, it's almost a gascoigne like quality where you say this is a a free spirit this is a hugely gifted footballer who can do there's nothing he really can't do with a football at his feet. In terms of going forward, Mike, it's the obvious ones, isn't it? Sancho, Sterling. I think our wide forwards are extremely important to England's future because that's what Gareth, that that's where Gareth Southgate's penetration comes from. That's the sort of the the energy within his counter-attack. Harry Kane remains important for as long as he is in his prime. I'm interested in midfield though. I I think I'm not quite sold on Declan Rice as a holding player at least. I don't Having sort of signed off on him a little bit early, like everybody else, a little bit prematurely, I you know, there's a few doubts there. I think he probably needs to leave West Ham in the next year or so. Mason Mount is the one that I'm really interested in. I know a lot of people aren't grabbed by his talent. It isn't as shiny as some of the players around him, but I, I think that's he's a, a fabulously gifted player. Someone who is already within the space of six or seven months adapted around a little bit of Premier League adversity. A few challenges that exist at Chelsea because Chelsea aren't the best team in the league, and they have some significant structural issues. And he's coped with it. He's rebounded, and he's adjusted. And actually, towards before before we um, before we hit pause on football, he was playing some of his best football of the season. I think he's a great footballer. Yeah. Um. So I, I in product.
0: Yeah. In yeah, product for is Mason Man, a little bit like like his manager Frank Lampard? Not not the, gifted, but not the most gifted in the squad, but but delivers in the in the big moments. I think when, when when chances fall his way, he's often pretty pretty clinical. Alexander Arnold's going to be massive yeah. for the team, whether he plays at right back or potentially in midfield. I mean that's a possibility moving forward. Personally I'd have him have him on the right side. And and of the players not in the squad I think Phil Foden will, will will make it. I think he's he's got that special quality that he might actually be the one that, that scuppers Jack Grealish. Ultimately, we'll have to wait and see on that. I mean, two quite similar players. I love Grealish as much as you do, but Foden has, has got more potential, I think, in, in that in that mould. But Saka, I'm a bit biased, obviously, with my Arsenal links, but seen a lot of him, and I think if if Gareth Southgate plays wing backs, which I think wouldn't be the worst idea in the world, then then Kaiosaka has to come into his thinking because he delivers beautiful crosses into the box and he's got pace he's got he's got composure he's he, he's very much at home on the, on the big stage i think he's someone that if he continues to get game time might might just for, force his way into the plans
2: mm.
1: what about goalkeepers seb you know i have to I have to say that i wouldn't have jordan pickford anywhere near it at the moment out of the
2: goalkeepers who are around you know nick
1: pope dean henderson who would be your
2: choice Henderson for me at the moment I think he's been the most impressive I take the point that Nick Pope has had a very good season and also he fits the eye test a little bit he's a tall guy he's imposing big body comes across as you know catches the ball Henderson seems to be a bit more reactive I just think there was a really interesting moment in Dean Henderson's season where I forget which month it was I think it was probably September when he made that terrible mistake at Bramall Lane against Liverpool and after that game Chris Wilder was asked about sort of asked about the mistake and he could have, he could have said, Oh, you know, you know, Dean, Dean's in credit because he's, he's got us out of so many jams it, as most managers would. Let's be honest. That that's usually the party line there. And instead, Wilder said something along the lines of, well, it was his mistake and he's got to own it. You know, he's got to, he, he, he's got to be enough of an adult to get over it, move on and, you know, perform a you know, a better level. And Henderson's reaction to that was a, First of all, it is very telling about how much Wilder knows his players because he received some criticism for that. You know, he knows how to to adjust his behaviour towards an individual personality, clearly. that Henderson reacted by playing some of his best football of the season. And every time I, every few months when I, I probably, I think I've seen Sheffield United in person four or five times this season. And every time I've gone, he's done something to impress me. Not in the sense of making a good save, because that's a goalkeeper's job. In terms of how he holds himself on the pitch, because I I think that's the most important commodity for an England goalkeeper is what separates your okay, your Pickford, your Hart, your your Paul Robinson from all the people that we thought could do the job in the past. Rob Green, good goalkeeper, not an England goalkeeper for whatever reason. Scott Carson, same category. Sadly, you look at that sort of that that intangible, that 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 confidence, that Mm. that it's almost a chest out quality. Um, yeah. that you need to need to play yeah. in goal for England, and he has it. I think he's, I think he could play in goal for England for a decade.
0: I, th- I think he's he's the best shot stopper. He's the one that produces match winning saves more often than any other English keeper. I mean, the stats do bear that out. I mean, his times G ratio is 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 incredible. Really good distribution this, aid as well this season. Good distribution, but but not Southgate distribution. And no, that, probably that that is the one. The one, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, Henderson and Pope, I did a piece on, on how the new goal kick rule was adapted by various coaches in the Premier League and you know certain managers played these short goal kicks all of the time and, and, and tried to play out from the back. Two of the keepers that made the fewest short pieces of distribution were Nick Pope and Dean Henderson. Barely barely took one, just, just went for the good old-fashioned clearance upfield. And as we've seen with Southgate, that's, that's not something that he particularly wants from his keeper so that's one thing to bear in mind I think when when, when assessing what Southgate would do I think I'm I'm with you I would go with Henderson and and Southgate would probably have to adapt his philosophy because I wouldn't want him suddenly trying to retrain Dean Henderson with something he's not comfortable at ahead of a major tournament
1: I'd, I'd also throw Ben Foster into the mix, if if, if I'm honest. Wow. But, you know, whatever, at least we're talking about football and we haven't done <laughs> enough of that probably over the last few weeks, have we? Um, you know, we have to, we've got a duty to look at the current situation as it stands. Been some significant noises off this week, I felt, especially coming from Rick Parry, obviously, who has that background, you know, from the Premier League, very well established also in, in the culture of club football, you know, him call, calling basically for a reset for 200 million for EFL clubs. One, is that realistic, do we feel? But two, is there also something significant that the most impressive leadership, from my point of view anyway, is coming from outside the Premier League? <laughs> I listen to Rick Perry. I listened to Andy Holt, Dara McAntony. These are guys who are at the coalface and they seem
0: to have a greater handle on it than people in their ivory towers in the Premier League. <laughs> well, they're being Am I being to, there? Well, they're being allowed to speak, aren't they? <laughs> no, one, no one's stopping them from having their opinions. I, I think that... I'm not saying that, that, that Premier League, you know, chairman and owners have, have been muted or told not to speak, but no one is putting their head above the parapet. Touched on that earlier, didn't... Uh, Seb did. So, so yeah, I, th- I think that's... That's partly to do with it. Rick Parry was seriously impressive. I, I do think he's a a good leader for the EFL. Big upgrade on what on what they've had before. I like the guys that you've you've mentioned as well. Two hundred million. I mean, I've been talking about it, haven't I on these shows for a while? EFL needs money. It needs a it needs a handout. It needs the Premier League and the government to chip in to keep them afloat to to be able to offer any kind of wage towards their employees because with with their income. Slashed beyond belief, it will be impossible to function as businesses without some kind of money being pumped in. Whether that's a loan, a grant, you know, just just a handout, We'd, we'll have to wait and see. It needs it; it really does. And and I think he he struck the right tone on salary caps, on on everything really. And I think the EFL is is going through, uh, you know, it's staring at the abyss, but but it's got some very very astute minds. Within it, and and they have to to lean on people like Parry and the other owners that you've you've just mentioned. There, the parachute payment debate was was really interesting as well. I do feel that that feels wrong in the current climate. I mean, that needs to be sh- you know shared around, doesn't it? And and yeah, I, th- I think that he did. He call it an evil. Yes, <laughs> he did. He yeah. went quite he went quite big on it, didn't he, Rick Parry? And I think that tells you plenty. About the way it's perceived by everyone who is not benefiting from from parachute payments, so yeah, that money surely now needs to be spread around a little bit, and look it will help it will help the EFL as well because it will even up that playing field which is which is what you want
1: yeah, it was quite interesting. I felt that you know, the Premier League made a point of saying that they didn't see any evidence that parachute payments had a You know, Dolitharius effect. I would argue, though, that this issue could be the breaking point between the Premier League and the Football League. You know, there's already some talk, you know, I I mentioned Andy Holt earlier on, Seb. You know, he's talking in terms of, well, the Championship could be our Premier League. Wow. You know, a vibrant product. You know, is he is he whistling into the whirlwind on that one, or is there some
2: substance to his defiance? It's hard from a commercial perspective to see how the championship could ever fulfil that function. That's what Andy Holt was alluding to. I like the idea because it's a sort of it's a, a reversal of a you know an almost thirty year trend. Now it's a football league determining its own future rather than being dictated to. I'm not quite sure how it would work, though, because I'm not sure. So a a couple of things really stood out from not just Rick Parry's appearance in front of the select committee or online with the select committee, I suppose, but other people's reactions to it. And one of the details which stood out was the sort of the... The lack of revenue which is made from the iFollow system. I think I, I heard a quote from Mark Palios, who is chairman of Tranmere Rovers. He said that his club earns £60,000 from iFollow subscriptions, which is digital streaming for those people who don't, don't know, in a season. And I think that kind of underscores the big disparity in, in, in not just wealth, but also earning power that exists interest. in the Football League. Yeah, uh, yeah, to put a fine point on it. Yeah, sadly, you're right. Interest. So I don't, I like the idea, Mike, but how exactly, I, I don't understand how how that would work. I mean, it's all very well saying that, you know, all right, the championship should break away. We should, we should, you know, take possession of our future. But have we gone too far down this road now? Is the brand to establish whereby the football league in whatever form, in whatever way it rebrands itself or, or reclassifies itself or reinvents itself, is now deemed an inferior product by the general yeah. public. You,
0: I, I don't you know. Look at darts. Just look at darts. You got the two right. organizations. Yeah. You, yeah. Can, yeah. you know, you've got the PDC and the BDO. It, one is one is superstars. One is amateurs, isn't it? It's yeah. You know, one plays it one play in shopping centres. So yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. You, you don't want you don't want that scenario. I thought it was the other key takeaway from that Parry chat was was obviously his his determination for three up, three down and and to completely understand why he went so strong on that he obviously threatened that legal action would be would be taken we we can't have a situation where there's no there's no relegation we can't i'm afraid it, They you have to you have to have you have to have that in place so the premier league clubs have have, have got to do a bit of soul searching really and ahead of this important vote because if they do vote and they stand firm and say look we you know, we'll only carry on if there's no relegation. Repercussions are going to be oh, horrendous.
1: Yeah, I, I I, can't see that happening, actually, hey, to be no? honest. But I, I think what we are probably going to get again is another, another round of smoke and mirrors. Mm. I want to try and sort of, if I can, lighten the mood. Because <laughs> there have been some pretty crazy suggestions so far in all this, isn't there? You know, you've had the the unthinkable arrogance of Gary Neville saying, well, we'll just go and play abroad somewhere where it's going to be a bit safer. You've got Gordon Taylor, bless him, talking about let's play 35 minutes a half. You've got this idea about piping in crowd noise. Well, what sort of game would that be? And then you've got this joyless idea that celebrations should be muted don't celebrate a goal. Now, I understand all the thing about shirt swapping and spitting. I can understand those concerns. It can't be football is not a joyless experience. Out of all that lot, and I say, I just want to make... The, just just let's, let's be a little bit light-hearted <laughs> for a change. Which was the worst suggestion, do you think?
0: Shorten in the game. Come on. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, let's just... Let's, I'll tell you what. Let's just play winner stays on shall we is that is that, is that the way to do it if, if next goal's the winner uh, it's just it's, it's just balmy, isn't it um apparently it is actually in the rule book where whereby the, the the league can can alter the length of a match in certain situations it's not actually they wouldn't have to rewrite the rule book it's there in black and white apparently I haven't read it but I did read a piece on that which we just found amazing but you can't do that we're not going to play abroad. That's for a start. I don't think they'll let us in. But let's 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 keep it keep it here. I mean, the other two, I I, I like, and I know that you don't. But I like piping in crowd noise. I, I, I would, when this happens again, and when I have the red button available, I'll be using it. I'll be pressing that red button to have noise. I don't want to be watching, uh, hearing the players. And it looking like a training ground. Look, if, if if it means having holograms of of fans on the seats or cardboard cutouts, I'm I'm okay with that as well. I just think I just I'm I'm, I'm dreading empty seats and silence. I really I really am. So yeah, that that, that one's not so silly. What was the other one? Have I, have I left one off? Well, that's the idea of you know you can't celebrate goals. Oh, yeah, you have to celebrate. I mean, players are going to be clamouring with each other at corners, aren't they? There's going to be man-to-man marking. So what's the point? And you're going to be sitting next to each other in the dressing rooms. If you're going to commit to playing, you have to do it properly. And, uh, yeah, if we're celebrations... Yeah. I thought point?
1: one brilliant suggestion came to me from one of the listeners, David Duffett. He suggested, Seb, that we play in Zorbs. What
0: about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't... I... <laughs> I mean, it, who it, would it, win a Zorb League? Yeah, but who, I, uh, <laughs> it,
2: the, the, I suppose it's kind of its own separate, foot, its own separate sport, Mike. You could launch Zorb Football as its
0: own product. Who's, um, the, who's, the, who's the beefiest team? I reckon Watford might win the Zorb League. Anything
2: managed by Pulis, anything <laughs> managed by Pulis wins the Zorb Football League. I had an idea. I, I mean, I don't know the practicalities of it, but I, when they started talking about playing games in neutral grounds, I quite like the idea of of the Premier League going to non-league grounds and playing. So I live half an hour's walk away from twerton park which is bar city's ground and that's in a, a very deprived area of the southwest and I just thought there must be some good that can come from saying right well we've got all these games which need to be played let's bring it down here and and let's let's let's, let's give a, a a 24-hour jolt to a local economy somehow I haven't thought this through I think it's almost something I dreamt so um <laughs> it's kind of my kubla Khan but it's I don't know I just I just thought like in, instead of Instead of putting these games on at St. George's Park or, oh, I don't know, let's hold five games a day at Wembley, can you imagine the echo in Wembley of a Premier League game with no fans? I mean, it's just that's that's a horrendous idea. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, just bring bring them, bring them down to, to to local grounds, go and play a couple at Weymouth or, you know, or Tunbridge. I I don't know. Um just be a bit creative <laughs> with it because I I think forgetting the the economic aspect, I think you can engender a little bit of goodwill there. Um yeah. I know there can't be fans, and that's quite right. But I think you could from the, the the Premier League have taken quite rightly quite a few PR punches during this episode because they haven't handled themselves well. I think it would serve them quite nicely to show a little bit of awareness that there is a game beyond their borders. And that would have been quite a nice idea. Logistically, I'm sure there are difficulties, but it would um, it would appeal to me at least
0: yeah, more than right Zorb football at
2: least. <laughs> Let's look,
1: if we could, at. Uh, Tournaments, you know, you mentioned it earlier on, Aid, that Mm. we do focus on it on a regular basis. You've come up with the two thousand and two World
0: Cup. Why? Well, I I liked it. I enjoyed the World Cup. I thought I thought it was it was it was great for many reasons, not least because Brazil won it. And I think when Brazil win a World Cup, it always has a little bit of magic associated with it. And obviously Ronaldo scored eight, didn't he? I think in the tournament. Rivaldo, even though He embarrassed himself beyond belief with with that crazy crazy you know play acting. He was great. Ronaldinho was was special. So you had you had a proper Brazilian team. Cafu, it was it was one of the last throws, wasn't it, for Cafu and Roberto Carlos as as the wing backs. And yeah, I, I thought it was special. We had Beckhamania. We had we had Roy Keane and Mick, McCarthy, Mick McCarthy's uh, bust up. I tell, tell you what, I tell you what, I
1: I would, and this is something maybe that someone like Barry Hearn would do, hmm. I would put Big Mick against Bold Roy on pay-per-view <laughs> as a scrap and I, I you would sell millions. <laughs> Who would you be backing then? I actually, I'd go for Big Mick,
2: <laughs>
1: you, you know, and I, uh. You know, Roy has got the mad eyes and all that sort of stuff, but I think Mick can handle himself.
2: That, that's a football good. writers' exclusive, though. That's a that's a Calvin Calls Keen soft moment, isn't it? <laughs> 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 You're lucky it's isolation, Mike. I tell you, <laughs> uh, it was no,
0: it was it was a good tournament. I mean, yeah, Eng- England were were England, weren't they? It was it was it was all about Beckham and the Metatarsal, wasn't it? In the build up, and we had the big moment with his with his penalty. Against Argentina, which 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 was sort of it made up, didn't it in 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 some way for for what happened against Argentina in in ninety eight with him and his his red card. I I wasn't enamoured really with, with Sven. again. I thought that that Nigeria England game, the the third group game, there was it was boring. It was a, it was a real lack of sort of urgency and adventure there, and it meant that we'd face Brazil earlier, which which was disappointing. But yeah, the plus for me from England for that tournament was probably the centre halves. I think Ferdinand and and Campbell were were superb. But yeah, it, it was another one of those competitions where we could sort of look back and say, we'll look back on it with a few regrets, I guess.
1: Yeah, it, it was a it was a tournament of of surprises in many ways, wasn't it, Seb? You know, if you think about it, France, the holders, were eliminated in the group stage with only a single point. Denmark and Senegal got through in that group. Argentina, as we've heard from Aid, were eliminated from the group phases. You had South Korea, who were sort of c- controversial in terms of, you know, Bu- Duracell bunnies. Really, you know, <laughs> other batteries are available, and you know they they reached the semi-finals and they beat Portugal, Italy, and Spain. So I suppose the tournament, in terms of interest beyond the sort of parochial interest of England, was, I think, very attractive.
2: I think so. I the thing I remember about that tournament was the the South Korean fans actually the way they supported their team because it was it wasn't just a World Cup in a different place it was a World Cup within a different culture which we hadn't really had before. I mean obviously it it, it had moved between South America and Europe and North America uh, 8 years before but in terms of an actual you know a, a different slant on the game that was a lot of that was new to me. I rewatched the South Korea Italy game. Not in, in its entirety about half an hour highlights because I always remember that as being incredibly controversial for obvious reasons. I read up on the story of the, the referee who is, I think his name was Byron Marino. He, he gave some pretty contentious decisions in that game but he also went to prison for drug smuggling years later. I don't know if anyone right. knows <laughs> that. Is
0: this, is, it, is this the Spain game you mean? or
2: No, 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 the, 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 the Italy game. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was when um, Italy went out on um, on the golden goal, mm. um, yeah. Anne's golden goal. Totti was sent off for a second yellow card for diving. It's actually apart from the the, the goal that was chalked off for being off the pitch, uh, the cross that came off when it was actually beyond the goal line. The decisions aren't as controversial as everyone remembers. It's a little bit of a trick of the mind. It was full of these little moments that that tournament. That I I remember the um the Robbie Keane goal against Germany when he banged it in off the post, you know, past Ali Khan. It's just full of little moments, and and the 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 Irish getting to get into penalties against Spain, it was just i don 't know english it was it felt like a sign of the times. it was what England were at the, at that point it was Sven was a quarter final coach nationally, but as a tournament it was just full of color and it was interesting and it was different and I was smoking at the time, so I was also um, smoking like fifteen cigarettes before ten o'clock in the morning, which doesn't, which, which doesn't, which isn't a breakfast of champions, is it? Really, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but it was, it was, it was great as an experience. It was
1: great. Yeah. Well, because England went through, you know, the usual cycle of emotions, didn't they? You had that sort of surge of hope after Denmark were beaten three nil, and then the despair of losing two one to Brazil. Aid, hey, you've been in the game. David Seaman beaten by that Ronaldinho free kick. Mm. Rivaldo says that Ronaldinho meant it.
0: Do you think he did? Definitely, yeah. I've got no doubt he meant it. Yeah, I think it was a moment of, of real genius. Yeah, I think he saw Seaman edging, edging out, and he went for it. Yeah, I don't think it was a fluke. I didn't think it was a fluke at the time, and I, I haven't changed my mind since. I watched it um, this morning, actually, guys. Yeah, again, yeah.
2: and, and I, remember, I remember thinking, you can see him looking at it when he does it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it absolutely meant it. It was, yeah. it was,
0: it was, it was just a, a brilliant goal. They were just, they were just a little bit too, too good for us, really. Brazil, in terms of the talent, man for man, they this was, a, this was a really strong Brazil team. I think Scolari, who who wasn't very good, let's face it, in the Premier League, but but he, he could be a, a very clever tactician, and I think he he had too much for, for Sven and. That, that quote, I don't remember the quote from Gareth Southgate afterwards, pretty brutal, said uh, about his half-time team talk. He said, we were expecting Winston Churchill and instead we got Ian Duncan-Smith, uh, <laughs> who's obviously known <laughs> as the, the quiet man of British politics at the time. So, yeah, it was, yeah, he just wasn't quite quite dynamic enough, was he, in that in that moment of the matter. But do you know what? If it, Even if it had been a Churchillian speech, I, I still think that Brazil team would have, would have found a way to have to have beaten us, unfortunately. But yeah, it was it was crazy. South Korea in the semis, Turkey in the semi-finals as well, and, and France, as you alluded to, worst ever performance, wasn't it, from defending champions? You think how brilliant they were in in 90, uh, in ninety eight, and they didn't score a goal. In, Did you know that? Um,
2: I, th- I think I'm right in saying that ahead of that tournament, the French kit carried a second World Cup winning star. There was a documentary on Netflix, other streaming services are available, called uh, Les Bleus, which dealt with sort of France post 98. And they their kit manufacturers, I think, and I'm, I'm happy to be corrected, I think they, they did the second star before, because in, in anticipation of winning the World Cup in 2002. I mean, can you imagine if England had done that? Like, the, the, like just, that's, that's such, uh, it's
0: amazing hubris. I almost admire it. It's, it's, it's just,
2: it's tremendous. But yeah. But
0: surely, how long does it take to implement a star? Like you know, surely you can do it uh, you know, hours after you've actually won the thing.
2: Surely yeah, but you to carry to... it
0: on your on your on your
2: kit into the tournament, not not oh. not for a final, just to say, right, this is our kit and we're gonna. It's like England saying, right, for 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 Qatar twenty twenty two. Yeah, you, well, we'll just put the star on now because we'll probably <laughs> win it. It's amazing. Yeah, you can probably
1: get an, uh, a knockoff version within. Ten minutes to the final yeah. whistle, I thought, <laughs> in one of the markets in uh, in Itewan or somewhere like that in, in Seoul. Um, Seb, now you've been a good boy, OK? Oh, I know um, it's coming, yeah. So we're going to give you the floor here. BT Sports series of great European nights this Sunday, concentrate on Spurs. So there are four games going to be on. The 1-0 win at AC Milan uh, in 10-11. The 3-1 win over Inter. 3-1 win over Real Madrid. And of course, Ajax 2, Spurs 3. Let's look at a couple. Let's look at that inter-game. Gareth Bale and all that. And the Ajax miracle. You up to it, Seb? I can handle it. Yeah.
2: Mm. So, uh, Inter Milan. I know for a lot of Spurs fans, this a fond memory. But I think actually, this might be partly because I, I ended up watching it in a walkabout. Which is quite a harrowing experience. I remember thinking that that was the beginning of the end for Gareth Bale. I know it was the beginning of his ascent as a player, but I remember at the end of that game, when it all, all sort of the, the the occasion had faded off. I remember knowing that he wasn't going to be at Spurs for that much longer. He was not going to spend his career at Tottenham because he was his performance at San Siro had been amazing, but it had been kind of anomalous and weird, and just one of those kind of it was like a you know. The game's matrix had 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 broken somehow, um, <laughs> but that game you saw this sort of confluence of footballing ability, but also an amazing athletic power. Like the thing about Bale was, yes, his ball striking, all that kind of stuff, but also he could hold his acceleration over a very long period of time. He wasn't necessarily a player that went from zero to sixty within ten yards, but over fifty yards, it just people couldn't deal with him people knew defenders knew what he was going to do with the ball but couldn't counteract it and so post Mycon and post a wonderful night at White Hart Lane you knew then that for the next few years all you were going to hear is Real Madrid and Bale, Man United and Bale, Bayern Munich and Bale, Juventus and Bale and it was kind of I suppose that's what Tottenham were at the moment I suppose Tottenham are a little bit like that now unfortunately I'm hate to admit that publicly, but it, it still feels like that. You're not you're not really allowed to have nice things. But as a performance, amazing. Just power. It's, it reminds me of like, you know, anytime you have a, a great athlete in sport, one of their traits is always that everyone knows what they're going to do, but no one can stop it. You can only kind of subdue it. And that's topical because that's what's used to say about Michael Jordan. And I'm not saying that Bale exists in that kind of stratosphere, but in that game he did. That was his character in that game. It was a, a, a miraculous performance, amazing.
0: One of the best uh, performances by a winger I think yeah. I've ever seen, uh, because it was against Mike Arn, who, who, who wasn't a bad player until that point. Very highly rated, wasn't he? But he, he got absolutely pulverized mm. by Bale, and, and that assist for Pavlyuchenko at the end. Yeah, it was. It was one of those jaw dropping moment, wasn't it? The, the 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 power he showed down that down that side. I also think that that night was a reminder that sophistication isn't isn't always what it's cracked up to be or experience for that matter in the coaching capacity because you had Rafa Benitez the European Cup old hand you know won it with Liverpool of course was 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 very very good in these these big games and against Harry Redknapp who you know hadn't really tasted European football a great deal in his career and he just went for it, didn't he? It was kind of handbrake off. Let's just—it let, was a bit naive, but let's let's go for it. And they did, and they prevailed. But but I suppose the bottom line is, even even though Redknapp will look at it as one of his great nights, it, it was all about bail, wasn't it? And it, it, was, it wasn't a top Spurs side either. By the way, some some very quite average players played that night. You know, Kabul, Asu, Akotu, You know, play, players like that. But some quite average players are not having that at all. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but isn't it, isn't it, guys? Isn't it all about seizing the moment, which is what Gareth Bale did, and what Spurs did collectively in that game against Ajax. Which, you know, let's let's regardless of any allegiance that you have. You watched a game like that and you howled at the moon because it was the sort of game that made you fall in love with football as a kid. It had everything. And it wasn't just Maurizio Pochettino with a tear in his eye at the end. It was people who probably didn't
0: care anything about Tottenham.
1: It was just pure human drama.
0: I threw cushions around the living room. I put my head in my hands. I think I might <laughs> even have punched the sofa. Like, I was so annoyed. But <laughs> just just because I just really didn't want Spurs to go through. And I loved that Ajax team. And, and it just felt like an injustice. But because the best team didn't go through. But about 10 minutes later, I sort of just gathered myself. And then I start almost like, I was a bit weird. I, I think I almost started smiling to myself thinking... No, actually, what what am, I, what am I like? This that was brilliant sport. That was amazing, and that is why we we love sport. And it's why I never understand why why people don't like football or don't follow sport. Now I'm not into sport really. I mean, they're missing out on so so many great stories, aren't they? And unexpected storylines. That that was a triumph, wasn't it? For for never giving up. For and let's face it, we'd never watch football if the best team always won, would we? Would you just, it wouldn't be interesting. It was for nights like that 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 make football great. So, yeah, yeah, I I can imagine, Seb, (laughs) your feelings would have been very different to mine. (laughs) But, yeah, 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 yeah. it was, it it was, Was it
1: was, it a case, Seb, of, you know, a nice, quiet cup of horlicks and
2: uh, an early night, or uh, was it something a little bit livelier? (laughs) It it couldn't be that lively because I was actually, I had a piece due for 365 for first thing the next morning. So I was up until about three o'clock trying to condense all the madness into I don't know, about 900 words. But I think what summed up for me was actually the next day I got an email from my mum, who, not a football fan, not a sports fan by any stretch of the imagination. But it was just, she was talking about, oh, it didn't didn't that Lucas Moura jump high when he was celebrating his hat-trick goal? It was very, very funny. It was just kind of BT Sport did these, I forget what they're called, they, they're kind of the behind-the-scenes ones. With the alternate camera angles. But they're they're brilliantly produced. And she was she was watching one of those and you're watching the Mora celebration. And it was I think honestly what, what sums it up in terms of what it meant to the club was the night before Liverpool had overcome Barcelona, they won their game 4-0. And at the end, Jurgen Klopp was sort of howling at the moon and shouting at the cop. And when Spurs did more or less the same thing, Mauricio Pochettino burst into tears, as did Jermaine Genus as did pretty much anybody else associated with the club. And I, I think that was very descriptive of the, the, the recent history. That's the sort of the psyche of the team, of the club. And I was thinking about this the other day because I, I wonder how many moments like that as a fan you get in your lifetime. I mean, in terms of the exhilaration of it, in terms of feeling like you're actually being rewarded for something by sort of some sort of footballing gods, I don't know, three or four? in your entire lifetime maybe you're lucky to see if that and it doesn't have to be Champions League semi-finals because that's not what fandom is about it's about you know overcoming something in an unlikely situation and that applies equally throughout the game whatever level the club operates at and I I think it's a very special place to be in because you know then that you know it might be decades before you feel the same way again that was an extraordinary night absolutely extraordinary yeah lovely stuff lovely stuff mate I suppose you know let's draw it all together now
1: Yeah, in, in a way uh, uh Seb you've almost given me a thought for the day there <laughs> is there anything
2: else you'd like to talk about uh, I don't think so I mean it's a it's kind of an echo of something I've said before but I'm going to say it again because it's still happening over the last 48 hours I've listened to a variety of anonymous sources talking about why neutral venues aren't appropriate I've heard talk of you know sporting integrity being lost I think it's it's get to the point now where I would quite like to I'd quite like the individual clubs within the Premier League to take responsibility and I'd like to I'd like to see the publish I'd like to see them publish their positions on this. What is it that you believe in? What do you think is the right way forward, and why do you think it? So we're all aware of this vague imperative of why football needs to come back and what you know the kind of the financial sustenance that the game depends on. Right, well, own your position as a football club. Tell me what you think. Stop. Football has, again, this habit of thinking it never has to justify itself. So this is a situation. It's unprecedented and it needs public scrutiny. So as a club, as with furloughing, you need to expose your position and hold it up to the light. Because if not, if you're not willing to do that, then your position doesn't bear that scrutiny. It's unrealistic. I say it in hope rather than with any sort of agenda. I know football won't do that because it's not transparent enough. But that's what it should be doing, and that people think it's such an unrealistic aim says it all about the, the the way the game is run. This is a very serious situation, and doctors are saying things like, "Well, how can we approve a return if 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 there is a potential for death in this situation? This is the severity that we that at hand. So it requires a uh, a proper adult put the big boy trousers on and bear the consequences kind of response."
0: Yeah, whether we'll get it or not is another matter. I suspect eight. What would you like to talk? Well, something a little bit more trivial, really. Something that caught my eye in an article talk, talking about generating an atmosphere. Because I think it's understandable that, that people are worried about player swearing as well. I think it could be a problem for, for commentators actually inside sort of cavernous stadiums where you can hear the players. There is a lot of swearing goes on, and and they might spend most of the the match apologising for for various remarks. So so that's why I'm kind of for crowd noises but, but a couple of ideas have been released there's a company in manchester that's proposed a fan studio where between 50 and 200 supporters who will follow social distancing to watch the games they will have their reactions broadcast into the ground oh, my <laughs> um, God. no club has oh, agreed to this it. you'll be pleased to know uh, and there's a german company out there that's got an app called my applause where fans will send their live reactions to the stadium and, <laughs> and you'd be able to, to, to play that out on the tannoy. I don't know how that will work. It sounds, it sounds way too complicated for me, but look, that is where we're at in, where we're at in this sort of mad world of lockdown <laughs> and the prospect of football. It's, it's just bonkers, isn't it? Mad, absolutely mad.
1: I want to end with what could have been a cautionary tale. Instead, in these trying times, it's a cause for celebration. Zach Brunt has just signed his first professional contract with Sheffield United. Now, pros will tell you that's just the start. The second contract is the hardest one to earn. Now, Zach began at Sheffield United at the age of five, a lot has happened since. He trained with Manchester United after winning a competition and signed for Aston Villa. When that didn't work out, Manchester City paid £10,000 for him as a 10-year-old. The story continued. Zach played for Atletico Madrid until FIFA intervened. He returned to play for Derby, but at 15 was back to playing in the park. He went to Matlock Town, where Sheffield United scouted him and understood his potential. Now, he's a great kid with many hurdles to overcome. But, as I told him this week, he deserves every success he achieves. I'd love to see him make it. So, thanks to you all for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. And please, stay safe out there.